if you're a dad who's facing divorce or who has already faced prison time or starting to face prison time and you're struggling with how you're going to hold your family together or maintain those connections, my guest has been there. Having already faced divorce and served time in California's famous San Quentin prison while staying in his children's lives, he will provide answers and hope, so don't go anywhere. Welcome to the Fatherhood Challenge, a movement to awaken and inspire fathers everywhere to take great pride in their role and to challenge society to understand how important fathers are to the stability and culture of their family's environment. Now, here's your host, Jonathan Guerrero. Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest is Wayne Boatwright. Wayne Boatwright left his career, wife, and two children behind when he arrived at California's infamous San Quentin prison to serve his time. Four months into his sentence, his wife asked him for a divorce. In spite of the odds, Wayne still strived to stay in his kids' lives, and he's here now to share how he did this. Wayne, thank you so much for being on the Fatherhood Challenge. It's great to be here, John. Wayne, we like to start out with a dad joke, and I'm curious what your favorite dad joke is. It's an old one, so forgive me. Why don't scientists trust Adams? Why don't scientists trust Adams? Because they make up everything. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that one. I, I... you know, I, I look at dad jokes as kind of like, um, uh, you know, the Zen master asking a student, what is the sound of one hand clapping, right? <laughs> uh, because because dad jokes, um, you know, they're slightly awkward and oddly enlightening, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so that's the way I'd characterize them. And I, I think that joke, however, is also an example of the orientation uh, that I've taken as a father. Every moment with your children is a teaching moment, but you got to be subtle about it. You can't be instructing. Uh, mm. Children learn from their parents by observation um, because you're the first thing they saw when they came into the world. They didn't have language to organize thoughts. They didn't have uh, written understanding and reading to keep thoughts and and develop critical reasoning, they only observed. So talking about scientists and atoms, believe it or not, is a much more common topic with my children than one would think of uh, just with the dad's joke. <laughs> well, I did real. I did enjoy that joke. <laughs> that was one of the better ones I've heard. So Wayne, let's get right into it. The beginning of your life seemed to be going so well. So what happened that turned it upside down? As with any life, it, it, it's a a big ship. It doesn't it doesn't flip uh, in a short amount of time. Um, and I think many people struggle with understanding their own journey and and many of the decisions they make. Uh, luckily for me, and and you know, I did go to San Quentin, and it's it is an infamous prison. It's where California's death row is. It's full of um, a lot of very violent people. But one of the great things about San Quentin and where I learned to understand how my fall happened and why it happened. And, and I spent years working on making sure that it wouldn't happen again. Right. Uh, Unfortunately, so many people were doomed to repeat our mistakes until we learn from them. And so I have worked very hard to learn 
from from the tragedy that I caused. And in my case, uh, it began with drinking, turned into alcoholism, and ended with me uh, arrogantly thinking I could drive while drunk. And I, I took a life uh, with my crime. Uh, I got into a head-on car accident and killed someone. Um, uh, you, you don't... I'm going to say something that may sound a bit off. Um, you don't know how much power you have as a human being until you've taken another human being's life. I never imagined I had the power to take a life and never realized that by doing so, I would destroy two families, that of my victim and my own family. That immense power deserves respect. If, if you don't learn to control it, it will control you. And so I had a very long and difficult path to, to deal with that. But in my case, that's the, the brief outline of what happened. Drinking, alcoholism, and then uh, a drunk driving. It's a crime. And I acknowledge it's a crime. And I, I've gone to great lengths to, uh, to both face what I've done, take responsibility for it, but also to help others who go through that. For example, one of the, the groups I went to at San Quentin, to that point of San Quentin, it's kind of like the Silicon Valley of prisons. Uh, there's uh, hundreds of startup nonprofits that send volunteers into San Quentin. Very unique. Most prisons have very few opportunities. And I, I took full advantage of many of those, uh, learned concepts uh, that I needed to learn and that I made it my goal in life to learn after I, I went to prison, to understand how I could do such a thing, uh, how to take responsibility for it, and then how to make sure I wouldn't do it again. Um, one of those classes called uh, a Victim Offender Education Group, Vogue. Uh, and it, it was an 18-month uh, process with regular meetings uh, with a small circle group of eight people um, that culminates with a panel of meeting victim families uh, uh, who have lost somebody to, to crime. Um, uh, those families included uh, one that was very similar to my situation, it included a mother and a daughter who had lost their husband and father um, to a drunk driver. Uh, and so I could sit in for that drunk driver and help explain how I'd understand uh, how I committed a similar act and understood the consequences of it and allow them to share the pain they felt. Because I think our goal is to help people get out of victimhood and become survivors. Um, I think it's unfortunate that many people in modern society uh, are mired in their victimhood and don't realize um, that the, the natural growth requires you become a survivor. You mentioned the pain. Was there some underlying pain that contributed to um, to everything that happened? I mean, let's go back a little bit. Actually, let's go back quite a bit before the accident. What role did fatherlessness play in why you went to prison? Great point. Yes, I was raised by a single mother who um, uh, did not graduate from high school. Um, uh, my brother and I... Uh, we came from the most humble of beginnings. So in my case, uh, that meant living uh, 
on government assistance. Uh, you know, I've lived in a, a trailer park uh, above a gas station in uh, subsidized government housing apartments uh, my whole life. I shared a bedroom with my brother my whole life. Um, one, one can't guess um, at a vacuum that has never been filled. Uh, I would think that what I have learned is the, the true role of a parent and, and a father beyond the obvious one of education and caregiving uh, is to be an enlightened witness to the lives of your children. Um, because I didn't have an enlightened witness either in my mother or in the fa absent father, um, I decided that I had to do it all, that I had to be better, faster, stronger. Um, the arrogance that that develops over time meant that when I started to have problems and used alcohol as a form of self-medication, uh, I both didn't even recognize it as a condition. I thought I had bad days, not a permanent state. But I also couldn't ask for help because I had to be better, faster, stronger. It was something I had to deal with. It was my personal weakness and shame. Um, and I think a role of a parent as an enlightened witness is to be there for their children when they have challenges, to let them know they're not alone. And merely that could be enough for somebody to awaken uh, to the, the real range of whatever challenges they face and the risks they're taking uh, on the path that they're on. Ones that I, um, I never could have imagined in my arrogance that I could be so drunk that I could get into a head-on collision and kill someone. But I did. You know, um, I think that if we pictured ourselves waking up one morning in San Quentin in the same scenario that you lived, most of us would not even want to get out of bed in the morning. What was your driving force or your reason that got you out of bed in the morning? Uh, I was motivated to understand how I could take somebody's life, to take responsibility, not just for the act, for the power it represents. I couldn't imagine I was that powerful that I could take someone's life. And I use that word deliberately. And that I had a responsibility to learn how I could do such a thing, to understand the wellspring of my discontent that led me to alcoholism, and ultimately to taking an unacceptable risk that destroyed two families. Luckily, as an educated man, I had both access to the groups that I participated in, and I had access to a library. I had asked us to having friends um, buy me books and send them into prison. So I did a lot of reading during that time. I like to say that I, uh, I studied ancient Greeks and dead Englishmen, because those tended to be a lot of the philosophers that I studied and read during my time there. Um, so 
I was motivated, though, to understand how I could commit this crime and take responsibility for it and to make sure I wouldn't do it again. Um, but I would say the greatest hope, the greatest satisfaction and happiness was being able to connect with my children, even though I was far away. And it's, it's, it's analogous to only seeing your children's life through a keyhole. You don't really know what's going on and you can't see much. You get these brief glimpses. Um, you're allowed a 15 minute phone call in prison. Uh, and re- remember that for me, my kids were uh, five and seven when I committed my crime and they were six and eight when I went to prison. Um, they were very young and I, my sentence, I was sentenced to seven years, eight months in prison and because of good time and, and milestone credits, I got out in six years, three months. I got out of 2019. So I've been home about four years now. Um, but I missed those developmental years for my kids. They were six and eight when I went away. I came home, they were teenagers. My son was going to a boarding school in Connecticut. He wasn't even home when I got out. Uh, my daughter joined him there soon after. Um, so they weren't even in the same city or state that I was living in after I got out. And it was still a much better communication than I could ever have in prison. That 15-minute phone call, by the way, isn't nearly as good as it sounds. You're, you have a bank of four phones along a wall. Having three other people on a phone right next to you uh, limits not only your ability to have a call, but for those of us who come from the educated, secular, elite world, uh, we have the courtesy of not listening in. I can assure you that most of the people in prison don't come from that world. They come from a different world. And in their world, they listen and see much more than we do as educated people where we've turned off uh, certain sense-making mechanisms we have out of a courtesy. So you have to be very careful what you say on that phone uh, because other people can hear it and use it against you if you're not, if you're not careful. So, so when I say I had a keyhole, they were very limited. I think the greatest gift uh, given to me while I was in prison was I had uh, a wife when I first went to prison. And then, as you know, we got divorced uh, four months into my prison sentence. But she honored her commitment to continue to bring those children to visit me while I was in prison, which is a much harder thing than you could imagine. Uh, the process you have to go through to get into prison is horrific. And uh, the visiting room is, is not an environment conducive, uh, to family conversations, but she honored her commitment to continue to bring my children to visit me. And that was probably the greatest gift she ever could have given me while I was in prison. And I, I've had other fathers say, well, I wouldn't want my kids to visit me there. And I'd say, well, you're insane because if you don't have that physical contact and have that chance to share experiences with your children, you will lose them if you only have letters and phone calls, especially if they're young. And um, their mother honored that commitment. And I will eternally be grateful to her for helping me stay in my children's lives. Um, I think we've become amazing co-parents since I've come home. And we both work very hard to make sure our children are doing well. For example, we have a regular um, either every two weeks or every month, uh, a debrief call where we both tell each other what we found out about our kids over the intervening time period and, and get up to date in their lives. 
Um, and that's an example of her commitment to helping me be a good dad. And I, I try to reciprocate and let her know when I'm learning about our kids and support her uh, as their mother. What are the most important lessons you feel your children have learned from you? It's rare uh, because my kids go to school back east. It's, it's rare to see them. I live in San Francisco. Um, but on Father's Day this year, I'd asked them to a similar question. I asked them, what is something you've learned about me and what is something you've learned from me? The answer I got was, it's okay to make a mistake if you learn from it. You have an obligation to be the best person you can be. My daughter thanked me because every time I see her, I give her a hug uh, because I don't get to see her that often. Those are valuable things to hear from your children. But I think that that value, that no matter what, to use an analogy, uh, you know, no matter what cards you may have been dealt by life or by your actions, you're only obligated to play them to the best of your ability. And I have tried to instill in my children that sense of be the best you can be. I, and when I say instill that in my children, I'm not just talking, uh, you know, out of the, the, the top of my hat. Um, my son is 19. He goes to, to Cornell. He, he's a member um, of a fraternity. He's a busy young man. But in preparation for our call, I, I checked my, my text messages. And he and I have traded in the past seven days. I was a very precise search. Uh, the past seven days, we have traded 154 uh, text messages. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot. Now, many of them could be one word, right? Don't get me wrong. But that's how regular we literally communicate daily. Um, and out of the blue, he sent me this text message. I've been working a lot on, and this is mostly unrelated, he said, to our conversation, I've been working a lot on trying to do the right thing at all times, even when no one's watching or there's no credit to gain. And then he said, because I can and because someone has to do it. Wow. It's not not just that. that. He said that to me. It's he said that to me. It's not just that he does it, which, of course, any father would be proud of. He shared it with me. That gift uh, of open communication and regular communication um, has to be earned and you have to work at it. Basically, after what you experienced, you still have managed to leave a positive legacy with your son. That's incredible. I think so. Talking about these things is not easy for me, Jonathan. Trust me. Uh, I may sound like it comes easily, but... But I want to inspire other fathers that they can have this relationship with their children if they work at it. And yes, it takes work and it's worth whatever it takes. And that's different for every family and every child and every relationship. What else is important to you than your children? Um, my, my daughter, my son was eight when I went to prison. My daughter was only six. And I was, as with any daughter with a father, um, you know, the moon and the stars to her. I was everything to her. Um, and when she was developmentally able to realize I had committed a crime and taken a life and 
um, it it characterized our relationship in a different light for her. Because when I left, I had abandoned her. I had betrayed her by tearing myself out of her life and going to prison. That's the way a six-year-old looks at it. And then that hardened into this sense of, of dad is a bad person because only bad people go to prison. So to work my way back into her life has been a real challenge because at its core, the trauma that I caused her taught her not to trust men because they'll abandon you. That's what a six-year-old sees when a father leaves. And so I've had to work very hard to let her know she can trust me and through that mechanism, have faith that she can trust men. There are a lot of dads that would take the easy route and just stay out of, out of their kids' lives after, after something like that, because that would be the easy way. It's worked to actually come back into their lives and stay in their lives. It's more than work. Uh, prison is a state of hypervigilance, um, a state you only experience in the most at-risk times. And for most of us, that's rare if never. Um, so you're in a high state of hypervigilance to avoid violence, to avoid abuse, to avoid uh, if, a, if a riot kicks off, you don't want to get involved in it. If somebody wants to fight, you've got to find a way to de-escalate that situation. And that state of hypervigilance means you don't have a lot of mental bandwidth to do other stuff. Um, And so you really have to work at it. it. It's easy to give up on your family. And it's easy for your family to give up on you. The shame that you have brought upon the family, the guilt that you feel by being in prison, um, it's natural to not want to face that. And one way to do that is just to cut off connections. And there are many guys in prison who never have a contact with their family. Um, And many of those men want to have it. It's the family that cuts it off. But it is reciprocal. There are many men who don't want to be visited while they're in prison as well. They're just too ashamed of what they've done. I, I think that's a form of arrogance. I I would contend that all crime and in essence, all sin, if you want to get into a religious context, is a form of uh, selfishness. Um, It's saying what you want and what you think is more important than anything else. I wanted to avoid whatever emotions were surfacing in me, given the circumstances I was facing. And so I self-medicated with alcohol so I wouldn't have to face those things. The arrogance and the selfishness that that represents, not just to my family that I interacted with, uh, but to my, my own body. Think of it that way. I'm being selfish to abuse my body rather than face the issues that should be faced um, in the world and, and deal with those and to hide from them and mask them by self-medicating with alcohol. I... I got to tell you, and I mean this for our audience as well, uh, nobody thinks they're an alcoholic or very few people do. I I thought I had some bad days. I have a small men's group. um, It's uh, by an organization called New Canaan Society. Um, It's a group of Christian businessmen 
that get together regularly. And it's, it's all over the United States, New Canaan Society. You're, we have a small group. We meet twice a month, 7.30 to 8.30 a.m. And, uh, and we have that chance to talk about our lives. And it's, it's a gift to open yourself up and be vulnerable and for others to share their vulnerabilities in their life as men in that small group format. It condenses everybody's life and it gives you a chance to do that. Every man should seek out the opportunity to have that small group experience. I, I also do a weekly Bible study that is small group and it is another men's group. I, I find that men are much more likely to be open if, if they relegate the group to, uh, to other men and more likely to share. And, and those have been effective tools for me since I've got out to stay balanced. My daughter's away at school. That example of trust that I mentioned to you and the importance of, of helping her learn she can trust men. My daughter trusts me to take care of her cat when she's away at school. You know, I have a little one bedroom apartment. The cat's at the house when she's home. But when my daughter goes to school, I take care of the cat. And I send her a Snapchat of that cat virtually every day. So she sees that her cat's healthy and happy. But that example of trust, she trusts me with the most precious thing in her life, her first and only cat as a pet that she has. Um, and I show her that she can trust me by sending her a photo on a regular basis of that cat and telling her how Milky Way is doing. That's the name of the cat. Find a way to earn your kid's trust. Do something on a regular basis and tell them you're doing it so that they'll see that they can trust you. How can dads connect with you who need help or advice or encouragement from their situation? I've posted um, uh, my LinkedIn profile and uh, many of the things that I talk about, I've written about uh, my journey with alcoholism and addiction, uh, my journey with self-discovery and self-understanding and service that comes from that with the various groups I participated in and, and other topics on a, a platform called Medium. Medium is a publication platform that has a multitude of sub-publications. I've written over 80 uh, mainly long-form uh, posts or articles with various publications on the Medium platform. If you go to thefatherhoodchallenge.com, that's thefatherhoodchallenge.com, and you go to this episode, look right below the episode description. I'll also have the links posted there so you can find them easily. Wayne, as we close, what is your challenge to dads listening now? Think big. Think big when you ask for help. My daughter, uh, when she was young, wanted to be the first space veterinarian. She wanted to be an astronaut. I wrote a letter to um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, have you heard of him? He's the famous astrophysicist that's written a bunch of books. He's on TV all the time. Yeah, um, he's, he's really famous. He's very famous. Well, I wrote him a letter asking, I told him my story and that I was in prison and I'd, I wanted his advice on how to motivate my kids to study STEM. Um, much to my surprise, he wrote back and we started a correspondence. Wow. And, and ultimately, he took my original letter and put it in a book of his called uh, Letters to an Astrophysicist. It's one of his many publications, one of his many <laughs> books. You can wow. read about my story and my daughter's story. Because a man of his word, when he went on a book review in San Francisco, he invited me and my daughter to the green room. We were his only guests before the show, and we spent an hour with him. And he got to meet my daughter and talk with her. And, That's and amazing. Learn about her life. 
Well, it's even more amazing because he had such a good time talking to her. He asked her if she wanted to go on stage. She was 13 at the time, a young girl, right? <laughs> and so she went up on stage and had a four minute conversation with this. This is all posted online. You know, it's, it's an amazing story. Uh, again, I asked him for help and he answered. You'll be surprised who will help you, but think big when you ask for help and humble yourself to ask for help. You never know what could happen. Well, Wayne, we have learned so much from this conversation, and I'm so grateful that you came, you've come on the Fatherhood Challenge. Thank you so much, Wayne. Jonathan, my pleasure. And to the audience, good luck, everybody. It's an, the most important thing in your life is being a father. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fatherhood Challenge. If you would like to contact us, listen to other episodes, find any resource mentioned in this program, or find out more information about the Fatherhood Challenge, please visit thefatherhoodchallenge.com. That's thefatherhoodchallenge.com.